All right, well, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off in the epistle of Jude. So if you want to make your way back to Jude, which is the book just before the very last book of Revelation. So if you'll remember, Jude wrote this letter specifically to stir up the body of Christ. Perhaps the church there had gotten a little bit too comfortable. Maybe they had begun to let down their guard a little, or perhaps Jude simply became aware of a threat and wanted to warn the body to be on guard. We aren't sure exactly what happened that led to his letter, um, but we know that we find the central theme of the entire book of Jude in verse 3, where Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to you about our to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend, contend for the faith, Jude exclaims. And he goes on to tell us why he wants us to contend. He says that we're supposed to contend for the faith because there are those who are marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who have crept in to the church and they bring in false teachings. So Jude is warning us to not let our guard down. He's telling us that people will come into the church. They're going to look like believers. They're going to say they're Christians, but in reality, they're not. And they will bring in destructive teachings. We can understand the temptation to let our guard down, right? Uh, we could use our current situation in the U.S. as a good illustration of this, I think. Have we not in the U.S. become so comfortable uh, with the freedoms that we have that we've left a lot of battles unfought? And now they've sort of come back to bite us, right? What do I mean? Well, the fight against homosexuality, for instance, is all but lost. We had the chance to stand up and fight it decades ago, and we didn't. Now, we live in a society where at the highest levels of government, not only do they allow it, but they celebrate it. Not only do they celebrate it, but they demean anyone who opposes it. That seems to be increasing as over just the last year we've heard of things like hate speech if you don't accept transgenderism and homosexuality. But it isn't just sexual perversion that we've become accustomed to. Abortion is another one. Our society has totally stopped contending in earnest, so much so that we have become twisted enough to call abortion health care rather than murder, which is what it is. We have social justice and critical race theory. Those are things that separate people solely based on the color of their skin. Transgenderism is being pushed on our children in public libraries and in school curriculums. In fact, it doesn't just reach there. Listen to the prompt that my spell checker that I use gave me when I typed in transgenderism in my sermon. It said this, some readers may consider the word transgenderism outdated or clinical and may prefer other terms as they regard as more modern and inclusive. Consider your context when determining appropriate usage. That was the prompt that came up on my computer as I typed in the word transgenderism. Isn't that ridiculous? And the list goes on and on and on. So we understand what happens when we stop fighting for what's true and what's right. 
Evil creeps in, and while we sleep, it desensitizes us. And so Jude, while he says he was desiring to write a letter about a favored topic, our common salvation, instead says there's something more important to talk about in this moment than just the gospel message. Instead, he saw the, the, the dire need to write to the church to call them to defend the faith. So Jude calls us to battle. He calls us to fight for the faith, lest the church be taken captive by false ideologies and false doctrines. And of course, we see that all over the church today, right? The leadership of a church goes off the deep end and they start teaching some whacked out prosperity doctrines. And rather than confronting the issues, people simply ignore them. Oftentimes, people will stick around long enough in these same churches that they begin to believe the error. And this is the warning of Jude. If you don't contend for the truth of what Scripture teaches, you'll eventually start to believe the lie. None of us are shielded or sheltered from that. Right? We're told that bad, corrupt, bad company corrupts good morals. If you stick around bad doctrinal teaching long enough, you'll begin to believe it. No one is guarded from that. So Jude says that some have crept into the church unnoticed. He goes on to say who those some are. They're ungodly persons who turn God's grace into license to sin. We've all heard this, right? Well, God just loves me just the way I am, so if I'm sleeping around, it's no big deal. God will just forgive me, right? Jude says that they turn God's grace into license to sin. Second Peter, in, uh, in 2 Peter 2.1, he says... There will be false teachers among you, speaking of the same kind of people, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And this is worth noting, right? The text says that they'll secretly introduce these heresies. In other words, it takes a little bit of discernment to distinguish between what's true and what's false. Sometimes and oftentimes, everything that they say is true, except for one central point. They teach a false doctrine wrapped in the skin of a lie. Sorry, they teach a false doctrine wrapped in the skin of the truth, and so it looks good on the outside, but when you really start looking at it, you find that it's false. Well, here's the problem. If you don't know the Word of God, it's kind of hard to spot that lie, right? You just assume whatever the preacher is saying or whatever the teacher is teaching, it must be true. And this is why the Apostle Paul um, said that those in Berea were more noble than Thessalonica because the ones in Berea received the Apostle Paul's teaching and then they went back to the text and checked it, right, to make sure that it was true. And he says that they were more noble because they, I mean, they checked the Apostle, right? And he accredited nobility to them. And so we want to be Bereans where we receive the teaching of the Word of God joyfully, but then you go back and double-check it for yourself against the Scripture. We aren't, we, our allegiance is not to any man, any preacher. It's to the Word of God, right? So this is what Jude is calling us to. It's an epistle calling us to be discerning Christians. Now, last week we took a little bit of break from Jude to talk about the portrait of a godly woman, and so I want to kind of catch us back up and, and recap a little bit. Two weeks ago in Jude, we started a three-part sermon called Woe to the Apostate. Woe to the Apostate. If you recall, 
we've been looking at three of sets of three in Jude. So Jude gives us um, warnings that kind of in sets of three. What we need to look for in an apostate. In the first set, we saw that apostates were doomed to the same fate as the Israelites who came out of Egypt. Right? We talked about the fact that although God saved the Israelites out of Egypt with all kind of miraculous signs and wonders, in the end, they, without faith, rejected God's command to go into the promised land, and they were destroyed because of that, because of their lack of faith. We also saw how these who creep into the church were compared to the angels who were doomed for eternity because they, too, apostatized from their proper place. And then, of course, Jude compares these who were secretly coming into the church to Sodom and Gomorrah. We remember that story very well. Basically, the whole cities had turned to sexual perversion, so much so that the men of the city tried to rape angels. The angels had to blind them to defend themselves. They were so wicked that God destroyed the cities. And Jude says, this is the same fate that apostates in the church today will have. The second set of the threes that Jude has is where we were told that these who creep into the church are dreamers and they defile the flesh. They reject authority and they revile angelic majesties. Right? We talked about how Jen Johnson from Bethel, Redding, California, um, viewed angels circling around the throne of God, how she said she imagined they had farting contest while they were circling the throne of God. I don't know how much more irreverent you could be than something like that. Um, isn't it amazing that when we look at all these men who apostatize from the church, we often find sexual scandal, right? They defile the flesh and they reject the authority of Scripture. Um, apostates don't want to worship God the way God wants them to worship. They want to do their own thing. They want to be an island under themselves. They want to just have my personal Christianity. Forget how God wants or deserves to be worshipped. They want to do it themselves in their own way. Effectively, they become their own God. And then we arrive at our text, verse 11. This is the third set of three different situations where Jude says, and you can put your eyes on verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So we looked at Cain last. Cain was the very first apostate. He left the path of righteousness by creating his own form of worship. He ignored the worship God required. I mean, this is the tendency of all of those who promote false doctrine. They stray from what God wants. Cain would have known exactly what God expected. Surely God would have told them how else would they have known to even bring a sacrifice. And yet Cain's sacrifice was not accepted because Cain brought what he wanted to bring, not what God expected from him. And so these apostates who are like Cain, they're religious, but they're not obedient. So they come to church, but they come for the wrong reasons. They worship, but they worship for the wrong reasons. They mix in with people, but it's for their own benefit, not for the glory of God. They do the things they want to do, not the things that God requires of them. 
They're religious, but not obedient. Cain didn't fail to bring a sacrifice. He brought it. He just refused to bring the sacrifice God desired. Instead of a blood sacrifice, he brought plant sacrifice. Many, many Christians get led astray because they think that they can worship God however they want to worship God. We see this all the time, right? Um, You can't tell me what to do. It's my own personal faith. I'll worship God the way I want to worship God. I can worship God in my home. I don't need a church. Well, that's what that is. They've decided to worship the way they want, not the way God calls us to worship. We gather together on Sunday because God tells us to gather together on the Lord's Day. Do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. That's a command in Scripture. And so for those who think they can just worship in their own way, and they say that they love Jesus, so we we would remind them that Jesus said, you love me if what? If you obey me. And the Scripture tells us to meet together, not to forsake that. God desires true worship, and true worshipers venerate God in a manner He chooses, not in any way we see fit. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians in danger of just doing that very thing, doing whatever they see fit. They believe that their faith is a private, secret faith, not subject to the scrutiny of anyone, even God. And unfortunately, many of us even probably have some dear friends or family who fall into that category of trying to worship God in their own way rather than what Scripture requires. We would want to reach out and love them and help them understand what God requires of us with grace and with kindness, but we must do that nonetheless. This is... The reason why there's no such thing as a faithful Christian who isn't committed to a local church. This is why pastors say that over and over and over again. You can't be a faithful Christian if you ignore the very things that make you a Christian. Right? God defines what it is to be a Christian. And if you defy that, then you can't really say you're a faithful Christian. This is God's design. And so we... Don't get to do it our own way. We have to do things God's way. God gives us guidelines and he gives us principles of worship. And those who truly love Christ will want to know how we are to worship God. And they'll do it not out of a sense of legalism, but because they love God and they want to worship him the way he desires to be worshipped. We don't come begrudgingly on Sundays. We come expectantly expectant on Sundays because we're coming to worship the king not because he makes us but because we long to do that but you can be rest assured if you are striving to worship God earnestly that you'll probably be maligned you will probably be made fun of you may be called legalistic you may be called religious in a derogatory sense But if you are, out of the love of Christ, seeking to worship Him rightly, we just ignore those accusations because, you know what? Our affections and worship belong to the King, not to those around us. We saw this with Cain. Cain, out of envy and anger, rose up against his brother and killed his brother because his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. So expect that folks may attack your faith if you are faithful. So we saw that with 
Cain, and then we come to the next person in our text, Balaam. Well, how, how many of you know the story of Balaam really well? It's kind of an obscure, except for you. <laughs> You've heard it 800 times this week. Balaam, well, what on earth, what on earth is Balaam? Well, Jude goes on to say, Woe to them, and for pay, they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam. So false teachers have crept in unnoticed, and they're like Cain, right? They develop their own style of worship, ignoring how God desires to be worshipped. And now our text says that these people are also in the same era as Balaam. Well, since I think the story is not as familiar to us, I want to refresh our memories by seeing just what happened with the prophet since Jews' warning is. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Numbers. This is the fourth book in your Bible. The book of Numbers. And you can go to chapter 22, and we're going to read kind of a rather lengthy... We're going to read the whole chapter here. But this chapter will give you... So, so the story of Balaam is kind of covered in about four, three or four different chapters. Chapters, I think, 21 to 24, 25, and then a little bit in 31. We're just going to read chapter 22 to kind of give you the beginning scene of what's happening here. So Jude is saying, beware, don't be like Balaam, and watch out for those who have come into the church who are like Balaam. So what was Balaam like? Here we go. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw, that is, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in the dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. All right, so they're talking about Israel here. Okay, they're afraid of Israel, and the reason they're afraid of Israel is because Israel just destroyed the Amorites in the previous chapter. Well, why did they do that? Well, because Israel asked the Amorites for permission to pass through their land. They promised that they would do no damage. They wouldn't drink up the, the water in the wells. They just wanted to pass through, and the Amorites said no. Right, And so God said, take the land. So they were obedient to God. God gave them favor. They overcame the Amorites who were wicked in that. And so now we have Balak who's afraid of the Israelites because of what they did to the Amorites. We'll continue on here in verse 5. So he, being Balak, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. He said, Spend the night here, and I will bring the word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. So Balaam is a prophet. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Beyond there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. 
Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come, curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the sons of Balak, Though Balak were to give me this house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here with me tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. So get that? God's already told him no. And he's saying, you know what? Just stay. Let, let me ask him again. Right? Verse 10, we'll continue on. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the elders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Let me just pause right there. Why on earth is God angry with Balaam if he said Balaam can go? Doesn't really make sense, right? Well, here's the issue. God told him no. Balaam was defiant by approaching God a second time, hoping that he could get this, these fees, right? He wants this money. And so God, allowing him the disobedience that's already in his heart, gives him a second chance to be obedient, and rather... He goes instead. So God's angry because of the rebellion in Balaam's heart. Verse 23. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword in his hands, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of a donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? that you have struck me these three times. Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. I mean, honestly, I'd be freaked out that a donkey was talking to me. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, 
I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. Kind of like I'm sorry because I got caught, but not really, right? But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you now. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth that I shall speak, that shall I speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirith Huzzath. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high place of Baal, which is a false god. And he saw from there a portion of the people. So that's kind of the scene. We have a prophet who is really wanting to get paid here. So much so that he defies God the first time after God tells him no. God gives him opportunity to repent and he doesn't, so he goes. He's so stubborn that God uses a donkey to talk and basically to save his life. Even then, he didn't repent for his actions. He repented that he got caught, right? Well, I didn't know you were in my way. Sorry, I repent. So he continues on. It would appear at the moment that Balak has been relatively faithful if you just read the text very quickly, but as we're talking about it, we see he's rebellious over and over again. This guy wants his money. This is a king willing to pay him anything to curse God's people. So while Cain, when we looked at Cain, he was a prototypical model of one who strays from God's truth. Here we have Balaam, who is the prototype of an unprincipled man. Money is his God, and he'll do anything for just a bit of gold. At first, it seems like Balaam is obedient. He kind of appears to be a good prophet, except he continues to entertain these guests, right? Hoping something that will, hoping that something will change. He knows that he shouldn't even be going with these men to curse Israel, but he's motivated by what we saw in verse 7, right? A fee for divination. Did you catch that? Right? They, the king sent a nice hefty fee to entice him. So he was insistent upon collecting this money. God has to make the donkey talk in order to get his attention. And I don't know about you, but like I said, if a donkey turned around and talked to me, I'm done. Like, I'm on my face, I'm repenting, I'm going home. Like, we're, we're done. Big angel with a sword that was about to kill me, a donkey talks to me, it's God, that's the end of it. Sorry, king, whoever you are, I, like, delete, you're no longer my Facebook friend, we're done, right? Never talking to you again. Well, that is not the end of the story of Balaam. In the very next chapter, we find Balaam in chapter 23 making sacrifices at least three more times to try to get God to change his mind. In verse 1 of Numbers 23, Balaam builds an altar and he sacrifices seven bulls and seven rams. And he says, 
Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Well, God did meet him and basically tells him the same thing. He cannot curse Israel. I mean, this guy's working really hard to get his money, right? This is a false prophet in that sense. He's a prophet sold out to money. So he goes back to Balaam, Balak, the king, gives him the news, and Balak convinces him to go to a second high place. So in verse 14 of chapter 23, Balaam sacrifices another seven bulls and seven rams. This guy's hard-headed. I really need that nice fee, he must be thinking to himself. Maybe God will let me curse his people this time. Actually, we find out that he's a bit of a madman. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter 2.16, describes Balaam this way. He says, But he received a rebuke for his own offense, for a mute donkey, speaking with a human voice, restrained the insanity of the prophet. Not exactly the reputation you want, is it? Well, God does meet with Balaam again the second time. And he gives him the same answer. No. So Balaam goes back to Balak, gives him the news, and Balak now convinces him a third time. This story is kind of getting old, isn't it? He says, please, in verse 27, the king says, please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me there. And so the prophet goes. The same thing. He builds seven altars. He sacrifices seven bulls and seven rams. I mean, this guy's just not getting the hint. From the beginning, God says no. Then a donkey has to rebuke him. He tries three more times. And the answer is, instead of a curse, a blessing for Israel each time. And then the end, Balaam is forced to bless Israel. But he tried really hard to curse them. And that was his heart. His heart was to sell out God's people for gain, for money. Apostates love money, and that's no different today, right? I mean, we all need money to survive, but Jude points us to the false teacher, the false Christian, the false prophet that would come into the church for the sake of gain, for the love of money. And Balaam, for the love of money, was willing to curse God's people. He was known as a prophet for hire. That's why the king went to him the first place. He already had the reputation of being a prophet that could be bought. Just pay me enough fee and I'll preach whatever you want to preach. Still happens today. Anything he could do to earn his fee, he would do. But God intervened in this situation each time he tried. Kind of reminds me of a modern-day prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Paula White. She's a heretic. She has multiple times urged her TV viewers to offer up their entire salaries. In fact, I'll just give you one brief story. Back in 2018, and I think she's done it more recently than that, she gave a whole spiel on TV, and she told people that they needed to send as much as their entire salary in January if they wanted blessings for the rest of the year. But that's not all that she did. She went on to say, if you didn't 
that you would suffer the consequences of failing to follow God's command. As she still makes those ridiculous appeals today. Give me all your money or God will curse you. Paula White is known for that kind of thing. You can watch it. It's no big secret. She does it so frequently that no one could ever deny that she does. She's just one example. She's a newer, younger, prettier version of Kenneth Copeland, which he does. Jesse Duplantis is another one. Benny Hinn is another one. There's a host of others. Joel Osteen, by the way, would fit in that category. He just wants you to feel good about yourself and then send them money, of course. They'll do anything for money. And so Jude is saying, beware of these men who come in. They lie, they deceive, they manipulate God's people. They threaten them with spiritual troubles, all for what Jude says is for pay. That they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Balaam is not someone you want to be compared to in the scripture. But greed and envy weren't Balaam's only sin, and his story doesn't really end there either. He was also sexually immoral. Isn't it interesting that we find money and power and sexual promiscuity or immorality behind almost every false teacher? Every false Christian, even. They'll do anything for money and for power. Well, let's see, where did Balaam really end up? If you want to go back to Numbers, you can go to Numbers 31. You're going to see a brief ending here. What happened to Balaam? What was the result of all this that Balaam did? And I'll just read to you from verse 1 here, just a few short passages. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the sons of Israel after you you will be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war so that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel to the war. So there was selected from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war. And Phinehas and the son of Eleazar, Eliezer, sorry, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy implements and the trumpets for the alarm in his hands. And so they made war against Midian, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of those killed. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. And the sons of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they plundered all their cattle and all their flocks and all their property. They burned the cities where they lived and all their encampments. They took all the plunder and spoils, both of people and livestock. They brought the captives and the spoils to the plunder of Moses and Eliezer the priest and the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. And Moses, Eliezer the priest, and the leaders of the congregation were out to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from the service of the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Because they caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to be unfaithful to the Lord 
in the matter of Peor, so that the plague took place among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam didn't curse the Israelites. He wouldn't curse the Israelites, but he wanted his fee. And so what he did was far worse. He led, not only did he sin against God, but he led others to sin against God. See, it was because of Balaam's counsel, right, that the sons of Israel fell into sin. We're told here, in other words, Balaam used his influences to ruin God's people through moral corruption. It was his counsel that caused the Israelites to have relationships that God specifically forbade. God's people weren't allowed to mix with pagans. They weren't allowed to marry pagans. They weren't allowed to engage in idolatry and immorality. And that's exactly what Balaam's counsel was. Balaam knew that while he couldn't curse the people, if he could convince the people to engage in sinful acts against God, God would be just and there would be consequences. And so Balaam not only sinned against God himself, but he invited others and caused others to sin against God with him. Balaam's apostasy attacked, attacked God's holiness, and it led others to sin, and it threatened the very existence of God's chosen people. And in the end, the penalty for Balaam was his life. There are always consequences to leading other believers astray. We hear this in the New Testament, right? Luke 17, 2 says, It's better for him if a millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea than that he may cause one of these little ones to sin. Do you know what a millstone is? You've probably seen, well, if you've seen, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, or other movies, millstones were really giant stones that often they had donkeys or other animals moving so that they could grind wheat right into flour. And in Luke, in the New Testament, it says it's better if you have one of those tied around your neck and you be drowned at the bottom of the sea than you lead one of God's people astray. It's a pretty severe warning, right? Partly why Scripture says not many of you should be teachers. So Jude says, beware, there will be those who, see, who secretly creep into the church. They're indistinguishable at first. But they're deceptive. They speak flattery in order to make profit or to gain some advantage. This is not just the prosperity gospel preacher, but the salesman who might come into the church Sunday after Sunday. He says he loves God. He sings the songs. He volunteers. He comes to Wednesday nights. But he does it all so that he can make contacts for his business. I've known some of those men personally. They really care nothing about God or God's people. They just care about what they can gain from their relationship with the church. Those men are like Balaam. They introduce secret and destructive heresies, Peter tells us, that bring swift destructions. That's precisely what Balaam did. His actions caused not only his own destruction, but the life of many Israelites. Also caused the life of the pagan nations who engaged and caused God's people to sin with them. Balaam encouraged sin, and so he lost his life, and God punished his own people for their wickedness. So you can't blame your sin on someone else, right? 
The one who leads us to sin is responsible and guilty. And if we engage in sin, we are ourselves responsible and guilty before God. And certainly there is forgiveness for repentance, but Balaam never repented. He tried and he tried and he tried. And when he couldn't do it that way, he introduced the mixing of God's people with the pagan nations, which he knew very well was against God's order. And their destruction was caused that way. He encouraged sin, and so he lost his life for it, and others were lost too. And Jude is warning us against the same thing because false teachers will do that. They'll take you with them to their own destruction. In the end, we see that Jude is unmasking one of the primary motives of false teachers. They're in it for money. They're in it for money. Some get very, very wealthy off of the church, right? By playing on the simple-mindedness of people, the fears of people. If you don't send the first fruits, as Paula White says, your whole month's paycheck, right? Kenneth Copeland said during the COVID crisis, don't worry about paying your bills. Send the church your money and God will bless you doesn't matter if your family's eating or if they're not, if you can pay your bills or you can't. Send your money and God will bless you. And if you don't, then there may be a curse. This is what false teachers do. And we have to call them out. It's not nice to ignore it and let them bring others into their false teaching. We have to stand against that stuff we have to confront those things and certainly we can do it gracefully and kindly but we do it nonetheless but this is the heart of Balaam it was all for money so some get very wealthy some in the church just make a very comfortable life they make enough to get by right you want to see what churches those are today a great many of them are the ones who are still closed currently been well over a year. There's no reason for any God-fearing, God-loving church to be closed, generally speaking. So they're certainly happy to sit home and make money and still appeal for offerings and tithes. These are the false teachers Jews warnings about. These apostates, and they're in stark contrast to what God's true shepherds are meant to be. So in fact, as we wrap up this morning, I want to just look at a few verses to compare We've seen Balaam, we've seen Cain, we've seen men who defile the flesh and who revile angelic majesties, who reject God's authority. It's been a lot of very hard, negative consequences. Let's look at what, just a brief picture of what men of God, what elders, what pastors are meant to be in the church and the character of just Christians in general. We see that in 1 Timothy, right? Compare this to Balaam and to Cain. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, that's pastor or elder, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, skilled in teaching, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not gen- uh, but gentle, contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Right? That sounds a lot different than Balaam. Free from the love of money. 
hospitable, self-controlled. And Balaam was anything but self-controlled. Right, goes on to say he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the transgression of the devil. Above reproach, free from money. That sounds different than Kenneth Copeland. Sounds different than Paula White. Mind you, Paula White can't be the husband of one wife, so she's already in disobedience there, but we'll leave that for another time. Titus 1, 7 is similar to Timothy. It says, for this reason, this is Paul talking to Titus, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. That eliminates Balaam and Cain. Right? He was rebellious over and over. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money. And it goes on and on to say self-controlled, he's righteous, he's holy, he's disciplined, holding firmly the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. That's the pastor's job, to refute those who teach false doctrine. Lest anyone believe it's not nice that pastors do that, it doesn't matter what they think. That is a command to God, from God, to every pastor. It is a part of the job. Lastly, in 1 Peter 5, it says, Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Right? We don't do what we do for money. False teachers do what they do for money. Not with greed, but with eagerness. Nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a far cry from the type of men Jude's warning us from, right? It's a bit of a, a fresh air, as it were. The Jew describes apostates as men who defile the flesh. God describes his men as holy. Jude describes apostates as one who idolize and love money. God describes his men as those who are free from the love of money. Jude describes apostates as one who turned the grace of God into a license to sin. God says his men are to be self-controlled, righteous, and disciplined. Jude describes apostates as those who, like Cain, make up their own worship. They do things their own way. They ignore God's instruction. But God describes godly men as those who and women who firmly hold firmly the faithful word which is in accordance to the teaching handed down by the apostles. So Jude is warning the body of Christ. He sees that false teachers, false Christians, false apostles have crept into the church and he's saying you need to contend for the fight, the, the contend for the faith. He goes on to tell us that these apostates are marked out for eternal damnation. Right? And that's a big contrast to what God says his men are to be like. What God's character for the Christian is to be like. So Jude says, beware. Peter says, beware. In the very beginning when we started this, we went through all the places that Jesus warns us against false teachers. Peter warns us against false teachers that are to come. And Jude says, now they're here. There will be those who creep in. They will appear to be Christians. 
They'll talk like Christians. They'll do things Christians do. But they'll bring in deceptive and destructive heresies. Some of them will be in the pulpit and some of them will be in the pews. We have to contend for the fight, for the faith, Jude says. We have to fight for the truth. We confront their error lovingly and hopeful of winning them back to Christ, that we see them repent, but we have to confront it nonetheless. So Jude says, contend for the faith. Let's pray.